This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's Friday the 10th of March and you're here on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, John Hicks. The intrepid producer of this show. How you doing, pal? Ready for the weekend? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not going to lie. I'm a, okay. a court low today. You're I'm a court, court low, low today. today. Yeah. Well, you we ever have we, those days? Yeah. Well, we had we had some yeah. socializing uh, yesterday did. evening, yes. which was quite fun, watching the local hockey team in yeah. action. And uh, and here we are yet again this morning. You're mm-hmm. going to be, we should let people know, this is kind of a back sell to our show on Wednesday. Which You're gonna awesome. be It was an amazing show yeah. uh, commemorating and recognizing and, and challenging us all as part of International Women's Day. Uh, you're going to be back at another Elevate Aviation graduation yes. tonight. Another class going through. Yeah, which is, a for me, a trying experience because I get so emotional watching these women get up and tell their story. I, I got emotional on the show. Like I went there thinking, you know, it's a, it's a good career opportunity or whatever, but the stories they tell are just yeah. like life-changing so i got my tissues in the car i'm ready <laughs> i love it i got some great party music for after we celebrate for a couple hours and then i'm home before seven yeah there you go yeah keep keeping it all tightly mm-hmm. wrapped if people missed our show on wednesday kendra kincaid the, the founding ceo of elevate aviation a remarkable story mm-hmm. of her own uh a runaway at 13 navigates the foster care system and and winds up starting and kicking off this program that is that is now providing career opportunities for for a lot of women in, in circumstances where they might not otherwise have access to these types of opportunities to post-secondary education. And here they are going through this nine-week program to introduce them to careers in aviation. And then they go from there. So if you missed that roundtable, it was presented by Urban Timber right here on the show on Wednesday. A remarkable one. Be sure to check that out after you check out today's show. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk to broadcaster Jody Vance. You remember this online harassment case and arrest made about a year ago? Um, this guy, just this this kind of like super fan turned uh, turned harasser like uh, Jody will tell the story way better than I will. But it got very, very serious to the point of police making an arrest, which, as you know, if you pay attention to this kind of stuff, is pretty rare. An actual arrest being made. Well, a guilty plea, a quick one at that is the recent development. Jody's going to talk to us about that in just a little bit. And then Dr. Rebecca Graf McRae will join us. Just after uh, nine o'clock, if you're streaming live, if you're if you're streaming this later or if you're listening to the podcast in about a half an hour from now, Dr. McRae is research manager at the Parkland Institute, a contributor to the uh, March issue of Alberta Views magazine, where she reviews what she calls the UCP plan for health care. And that is underfund, criticize, privatize. And so we're going to look at that, uh, get into the pages of the newest uh, edition of Alberta Views magazine. Plus, there's a reason for you to pay close attention because we're partnering up with Alberta Views to make a subscription half price for real talkers. So we'll have details on that a half hour. But we lead off with an in-studio guest. I've been looking forward to catching up with her for quite some time, but we've had to wait because she's been overseas. She's been in Sweden and Finland and Poland and Ukraine. She's the member of parliament for Edmonton Strathcona. Heather McRae, you're not making your uh, real talk. Uh, Heather McPherson, pardon me. Uh, Rebecca Graf McRae coming up. Heather McPherson, I do know who you are. Uh, you've been on the show several times, but this is our first time in studio. So yeah. so welcome to the Real Talk studio. It's Thanks. nice to see really you. It's really nice to be here. Nice you to be are, here in person. You're like, you're literally, I mean, Johnny and I are, are complaining about being a court low because we stayed up watching the hockey game you are you navigating jet lag right now you're like just back yeah we've been you know honestly i was talking to my husband i've been in eight airports over the last three weeks like 
it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot, of, lot of travel. Unbelievable. So you're the foreign affairs critic for uh, the NDP, and and uh, you were there on. Were, can you can you describe for us first of all uh, this trip that you were on? This we'll, we'll call it like a delegation that you were on uh, overseas. The pur- the purpose of it, who you were with, and kind of what you were hoping to to achieve. Yeah. So I'm a member of the foreign affairs, the standing committee on foreign affairs and international development. Of course, one of the biggest things. Well. Arguably, the biggest thing happening in the world right now with regards to foreign affairs is the is the the illegal invasion of Ukraine by the Russian Federation. So we wanted to go and talk to parliamentarians in in other countries, particularly countries in Europe, particularly countries that are that are close to that conflict. So we were we were in Sweden. We were in Finland. You know, they are obviously looking for an ascension to NATO. And so we wanted to talk to those parliamentarians in Poland just because that is next door. I wanted to get a sense of of what's happening, what's happening with within their parliaments, what, what our parliament needs to do more of, what our government needs to do more of. So we had those those conversations. And and frankly, for me, I mean, for to be that close to Ukraine and not go to Ukraine felt really wrong. You mm. know, we know that there's been about 17 parliamentary delegations that have gone to Ukraine. And so our delegation decided not to go. And I uh, I disagreed with it. So mm. I, I hopped on a train and, and I went by myself. That's a, a little bit different than what you what you might expect, sort of like a, a visit from an elected official from a country like Canada or the United States D- typically wouldn't just like hop on a train and go. Uh, It's a little bit different. Did you have to sort of approach this in a way that was more mindful of security than you might typically? I mean, was was this a bit of a different experience for you? Though I have to say, I mean, I've spent my career working in international development, so I'm, 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 I'm pretty comfortable traveling. I'm pretty comfortable traveling in some in some pretty uh, hairy situations. The the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada had invited me, and so she was helping me sort out some of the logistics there. Helped set up a program for once I got to Kiev. Um, you know, made sure that I had the ability to meet with some of the the people that I needed to meet with, but also see some of those things that I think are so are so important to see. Yeah, has, has your uh, like when you when you're talking to representatives uh, in, in nations like. Um, you know, Sweden or Finland, has your understanding of the importance of or your perception of the importance of has the context around uh, discussions around NATO changed in light of what's happening in Ukraine right now? I mean, what were those conversations like? You know, honestly, I think the the conversations around the international world order, including NATO, have, have changed since February 24th last mm-hmm. year. You know, the world is not the same place. When Russia invaded Ukraine, that changed the world dynamic. And and it becomes became really clear to me, more important than ever, that we are working with those countries that value democracy, that value value a world-based order that a rules-based order that you know that, that value these principles of, of justice and human rights and freedom that that more than ever it's it's important for us to sort of friend shore with those folks and mm-hmm. make sure that we are working together and we are supporting them but i'll tell you finland sweden poland parliamentarians in those countries regardless of their political stripe they see the war in ukraine very differently they are very close to what's happening, they are very supportive of Ukraine. They recognize what happens if Ukraine does not win this war. In other words, like they could be next. Yeah. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, totally. And 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 you know, Russia is 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 already you know, there's things happening in Moldova. There's things happening in Georgia. We've seen what happened in Belarus. Like this is this is a bigger conversation than just Ukraine. And and Ukraine is really on the front line, and they are fighting for some really important values that that yeah. we want to see on the world. Social media has has changed 
changed how we can understand the impact of conflict. And mm-hmm. I mean, I looked, you know, we spent some time this week. We talked to a, I don't know if you've ever met Ray Elisa Schmidt Tegan. Tegan. She's, uh, she works uh, with a group, MedAir. Uh, she's in Damascus in Syria, and they're on the Syrian side trying to help people with this, obviously, this devastating earthquake and everything Absolutely. that's been going on. She describes it as crisis heaped upon top of crisis. But, <clears throat> you know, we're talking about, you know, you'll see posts on like Instagram or Twitter, this remarkable video that the world would never see in other circumstances because it's people shooting like, look at this cat that survived like 10 days in rubble or look at this 18 month old toddler that was pulled out alive out of this rubble. And we're seeing this and we see it obviously in, in Ukraine as well, like bombed out buildings and blown up highways and, and all of this devastation. And yet you also see people like sipping espresso on the side of the street, trying to preserve some element of normalcy, but also not knowing if like artillery attacks are coming or if missile attacks are coming. What did you see? What did you experience? How how, did, how are you wrapping your mind around it? You know, it's going to take me a couple of weeks, I think, to really, really digest what I saw because it was it was horrifying. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that was most difficult for me is that they took me to a community. It's called Airpin, um, one of the communities that was really hard, hard hit by the Russian army. And, you know, it looks like Sherwood Park. It looks like Stony Plain. It looks like a community that, mm. that I would raise my family in. It looks like, you know, there's apartment buildings and pharmacies and, and grocery stores. And, you know, you're walking through these communities that have just been decimated. And, and for me, it's like this. There was no military target there like this these were families these are these are old people these are you know these are folks just living their lives one of the most shocking things i saw there was a there was a playground and i walked over and there are all these holes everywhere and you know it takes you a minute to realize those are bullet holes in a slide in a child's slide like that's that's brutality it's just so brutal so uh, you you know it but you're right we're standing there we're talking about this um this brutal destruction in this community and this this gentleman walks up and invites us to his his apartment for tea Hmm. you know like come and have some tea he he's he's living in a community that's been devastated that's been bombed that's been targeted and and Ukrainians are, are are beautiful people. They they want to continue to have that hospitality. They want to continue to welcome people into their homes. Yeah. So you so you have these experiences. You meet people on the ground, as we say, and then you're also talking to obviously people in powerful positions and people in, in you know elected representatives and, and diplomatic mm-hmm. representatives and things like that. You you come back, and I know that you've. You've basically just landed here. You, you kind of, for the most part, landed and came to the Real Talk studio. We appreciate that. Um, but but do, do you come back here with on kind of a mission? Do you come back here with a message for not just people in, in your constituency, but for Canadians, for that matter? Absolutely. Um, and, and for our government. You know, one of my roles as an opposition member is to push the government to do more. And there is more things that Canada de- does need to do. You know, you're talking about uh, Turkey and Syria. Well, the food crisis that is happening across across sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, because of Putin's war in, in Ukraine, uh, Canada can be helping with that. You know what we're really good at? Demining. They can't plant the fields in the spring unless they can get the landmines out of those fields. So we should be sending folks over there to help with that process. You know, I met with a civil society group, a bunch of 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds that are demining the fields outside of, outside of Kiev. And I have a 17-year-old. You know what I don't want her to be doing? demining yeah. fields like with a with a stick with a with a metal prod like this is outrageous so we the things that we could do to help with that the sanction regime making sure that that's that's more effective that we're enforcing it better you know making sure that we're doing things with ukraine urgently like 
this this sort of dribbling in of support is 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 not as helpful as if if we could be stronger. So that's part of it. But for Canadians, for all, for Edmontonians, I I just think it's so important we don't forget that that what's happening in Ukraine continues needs our support. We we shouldn't be changing the channel. We do need to focus on that. Absolutely. There's lots of things happening around the world. You know, we see problems, uh, you know, what are we at 540 days since Afghan women have been able to go to school, you know, the horrific earthquake in, in Syria and Turkey. Um, but, but and there's a million other to... things we're not going to name right now that exactly. deserve to be named too, exactly. right? That's kind yeah. of the point you're making. But, but we really do have to maintain our support for Ukraine. And, and yeah, I know it's, it's hard. We, we're a long ways away. Heather McPherson's our guest, uh, MP, uh, NDP MP out of uh, Edmonton, Strathcona. Let, let me not oversimplify something. Um, but uh, we did have this conversation with, with Raya Lisa that I mentioned earlier this week. And, and she, uh, you're the foreign affairs critic. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about the impact that sanctions are having on the people in Syria, on the, on the Syrian people, not on the regime. Um, and I don't want to oversimplify the conversation, but we uh, and our audience, we were all kind of together lamenting, understanding that sanctions play a role and that they are important, obviously, when it comes mm-hmm. to international relations and, and conflict, uh, you know, mitigation, all these types of things. But what would be your thought on, on that idea, that premise that oftentimes the sanctions hurt the people more than they hurt the regime? So the kind of sanctions that we've always been calling for are the Magnitsky Scott style sanctions. So these are the ones that target individuals. So we're looking at the Russian oligarchs. I don't I don't think any of us want to hurt regular Russian people. We want to hurt Putin. We want to hurt the Russian oligarchs. So for us, that's the issue. You really want to make them targeted and individual. So so for us, like I love the idea of seizing assets from from oligarchs because I you know, they're the ones that we want to punish. Not the not the not the everyday folks that are just trying to to get through. Not the ones that aren't responsible, aren't making those decisions. So in Syria what we see is that they're not targeted. They are they are they're wider and you're right they have impacts on the people on the ground and that's not what we want we've seen that before in iraq we've seen that before in other areas seeing it in syria right now yeah target them make sure that it's hurting the people that are making these terrible decisions not the people that are also having to live with the terrible decisions of the of the leadership within their country um i I know you've got to go we've got jody vance ready to rock but but i can't have uh, a federal mp sitting here (laughs) and not i know you've been overseas uh but i can't not ask you about the Chinese uh, election interference mm-hmm. story and, and what you think it means. Obviously, you oppose the liberal government, uh, but but what are your thoughts on that and the bigger implications, not just for Justin Trudeau, not just for this liberal government, but for Canadians? Yeah. Obviously, people want to know that the elections are playing out without uh, foreign interference, regardless of where it's coming from. Yeah. But I think people are especially attuned right now to to some of the aggression that they're seeing digitally and otherwise from China. Absolutely. You know, I sit on the, the Canada-China committee. There's a, there's a committee that looks just at China issues. I'm the NEP member on that committee. I agree with I agree with Canadians. We need to find out if our elections have been tampered with. And and unfortunately, like I, I understand that that national security sometimes requires things to be to be kept confidential. But unfortunately, the prime minister has left it so long that that we need to have some sunlight on this. We need to have this be public because otherwise Canadians won't have confidence in our elections. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to look at it bigger. You know, absolutely. We're looking at China right now. But if you think that Russia has doesn't have interest and sowing chaos in our in our elections Iran you know I mean let's be honest here the 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 U.S. owns a lot of our media uh they also um you know they we also have to have to 
have some understanding of what that looks like too. So I, I'd like to look at it bigger. I'd like to look at it as a, as a broad problem that we have to look at. And I think it needs to be public. I think the, the prime minister trying to dodge this for the last two weeks has done nothing to, to give people confidence that our elections are, are protected, that they're safe, that they're that they're fair and, and equitable. So that's we're going to keep pushing for that. I think it's interesting you bring up the Americans and, and American-owned or you know media. It's uh, it's it's kind of you know you, you talk to people these days and they're talking about Russia, China, and Rupert Murdoch-owned media. Like they're like the three entities that yeah. people are keeping an eye on, uh, and it's no joke. Heather McPherson, thank you so much for making time for us. It's nice to have you here in studio. Yeah, uh, welcome to back to Canadian soil. Thanks for telling us about your uh, your journey over to Ukraine. What a remarkable experience. Thanks very much for having me. You've got nice it. Heather you. McPherson is one of two NDP MPs in the province, of course, uh, joined by Blake Desjardins uh, in the city of Edmonton, and of course, representing her constituency of Edmonton Strathcona. Jody Vance coming up in just a second. This conversation is presented by Athabasca University. It's Canada's open university with world-class accredited online programs and courses offering you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. That's just one of the reasons why Athabasca University, a great fit. I was talking to a real talker by the name of Ivona just the other day. She tells me she graduated from Athabasca U with a degree in journalism. And she's also telling me, she's telling me that the reason that she was able to make that happen is because she had that flexibility, right? She's working a full-time job 40 hours a week. She wasn't able to just go sign up for university somewhere and, and, and just basically take a course load Monday to Friday, nine to three, right? She had to fit it in with her full-time job. Well, she graduated with a degree in journalism. She said right away it elevated the salary that she was making and her career opportunities. That's the story of a real talker. That's Ivana's story. What's yours? You can start to plot out your Athabasca University experience today at AthabascaU.ca. The family-owned team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food wants you to know that they've got a special for the month of March. This is exclusive to Real Talkers. The March promo, the Doggy Moggy Chicken Raw Pet Food Blend. The 40-pound box on sale for $73.50 a box. It's about 20% off or so. Orders placed before the end of the month of March. Eligible for the discount with March 2023 as the promo code. March 2023. We feed our dogs Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food because we have seen the payoffs when it comes to their health in a number of different contexts. You can check them out online today. The blog link has some great information. Grand Dog delivers to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. Again, granddog.ca. The promo code March 2023. Hey, if you find yourself in the nightmare scenario dealing with a flooded basement or, or maybe even, I mean, oh man, a house fire, maybe a garage fire, something like that, where cleanup's got to be quick and you need to be able to trust who's doing the work, Complete Care Restoration should be your first call. You know, chances are that your insurance policy lets you choose who does the work when it comes to fixing, repairing fire or flood damage, never mind mold, asbestos removal, they do that, or even just construction and renovation projects like Complete Care did for us here in our Real Talk studio. You can give them a call today, 780-454-0776, or check them out online, completecarerestoration.ca. Literally the only Real Talk sponsor that says they hope you never have to call them. But if you do encounter disaster, make Complete Care Restoration your first call. 
broadcaster Jody Vance uh, has, of course, been applying her craft for many years. Uh, she is a known entity across the country, uh, having uh, done sports broadcasting, news broadcasting, and of course, now uh, paired up with her good pal, Linda Steele. Steele and Vance on check. You've seen them here on Real Talk before. But behind the scenes, Jody has been dealing with a nightmare scenario. Uh, online harassment uh, has been happening. And while that's not unique to Jody, this was a circumstance ramped up to the point that an arrest was made. And just recently, a guilty plea entered. Jody, kind enough to join us on the show to talk about it this morning, live from BC. It's nice to see your face again. It's kind of a weird context to connect with you on, but are you? at least feeling a little bit of relief that this is getting closer and closer to, to having this chapter closed. I got to tell you, Ryan, I am exactly one hour away from going to the crown prosecutor's office. I am 90 minutes away from sitting in a courtroom and seeing this man who felt it was okay to harass me online for five years, hundreds and hundreds of emails sent, uh, not just to me, but to my colleagues, my coworkers, to guests who would join me on air. Um, this is a day I've looked forward to, as weird as that might sound. I look forward to facing this person who thought it okay to attack an utter and complete stranger. Um, and yeah, I will have an opportunity to read my victim impact statement um, and and have my moment, if you will, to uh, to say back to him what so many people right now who are feeling the anger and feeling the sense of entitlement to go after those they disagree with in a way that's vitriolic or even sexualized or um, uh, threatening, if not next level death threats. Yeah. Um, this is a big day. This is a big day. And, and I'm honestly, I'm so grateful for you having me on here because I've never said this man's name publicly. And today is the day that I changed that. Huh. And I decided because you've been so incredibly supportive that I would do it here on Real Talk, because this is real talk. Mm -hmm. His name is Richard Oliver, and he is from British Columbia. He lives not far from me. He is married. He has children. He is, you know, works in senior care, if you can believe it. Um, and he really has done things that are reprehensible toward me. Uh, if you've ever been on an online chat group where journalism is discussed, you will see him oftentimes using his real name. Uh, but real talk, real name, I thought it appropriate to drop it for the very first time. Seven years has been a long time coming, I'll tell you that. What are you feeling right now as you say the name Richard Oliver out loud? Like, Is there like a visceral, physical response that you feel? My heart is pounding. I've uh, looked forward to it. I want him now, because I don't want tit for tat. I don't want anybody to harass him. I don't want, I want accountability. Mm -hmm. I want consequences. I want him to get the help he needs because there's something broken in you when you take the time to comb through someone's social media, choose photographs of them, and then Photoshop them into Auschwitz prison camps. I don't know what causes a person to do that. So clearly this man needs help. And an hour and a half from now, depending on when you're watching this, yeah. uh, he will have heard from me and heard exactly what the relentless nonstop, multiple times daily emails. Um, you know, I'm not sure how how saucy the language can get here on Real Talk, but Jody, we always say you can say whatever the fuck you want. So Okay, here we go. So how about an email address? Every time I blocked him, because people often say, why don't you just block him? All I did in the beginning in twenty fifteen, 
I did block him and he would create a new email address and a new email address and a new mail. And, and the one that really got me was Jody swallows at hotmail.com. Mm. Got it. Really? Really? Richard? Really? Who are you? Husband, what are you doing? Father, Why are you doing care? this? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So can I ask like this is uh, and, and I want to be careful how I ask this question because I don't want to indicate or imply that I think broadcasters or public facing people in particular, may I say a woman in broadcasting, I, I don't think that you should say, well, it kind of comes with the territory or like if you, you know, you signed up for it, you should deal with it. Uh, I believe that all harassment needs to be taken seriously. And it's something that's becoming, uh, that is a very real issue in society. There's a reason why a lot of people are paying attention to your story in particular, uh, this guilty plea, Jody, but what was it about this one? Cause I know for a fact, you and I have known each other for a long time. This is not the only person that has harassed you, trolled you, bugged you, sworn at you, you know, insulted you. So so what was it about this one when you were like, I'm taking action? You know, I want to see this guy in handcuffs. My skin is about five feet thick. Um, luckily, through my sports career, as, as you were mentioning, I, I worked in sports broadcast. Uh, I had very nice fans. Uh, if you read the Globe and Mail article that sort of talks about the history of this case, I've had multiple stalkers in my life. Most of them wanted to date me or marry me or we were meant to be together, what have you, like would send me kind things, but creepy kind, you know, things that I would be right. like, mm, yeah, okay. thanks, thanks, but no thanks. Um, yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. So I learned how to protect myself. Um, I have a, a son. He's 15 now. When this all began, he was just a little kid. And um, this particular, well, I, I'm so used to saying this particular individual, Richard Oliver, uh, came at me in a way that the others who disagreed with what I'd say or had an opinion on um, how I should, you know, be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen because I'm a woman or whatever, whatever that sort of the stuff that doesn't land. He came at me in a way where he wouldn't just email me, he would copy in all of my coworkers. Oh, geez. He would copy in the executives. Ryan? he would copy in my guests that I would have on the show. We had Professor Peter Hotez from Texas Children's Hospital on Steel and Vance last night. Professor Hotez has received probably 30 emails from Richard. Um, we have had, you know, there are multiple people as, as part of this lawsuit that the Crown has brought against him for this criminal harassment case because his threatening tone was that significant. He also copied me in on a death threat towards a uh, provincial health officer in British Columbia, Dr. Bonnie Henry. He was different for many reasons. At, in the early stages and days, he would he would come at me and I, I would, you know, put, respond. I try to respond to the audience as you do. I mean, we can try and find middle ground. I've got friends who I met by way of uncomfortable conversations or debates or disagreements. Uh, and we've found middle ground. We've agreed to disagree. And we, we move forward in, in what I think is, you know, healthy discourse leads to healthy friendships. Uh, but this man, mm -mm. he would like Photoshop a communist flag onto the mask that I was wearing in the health, not hate campaign to, to stop or, or identify, um, you know, the, the escalation of Asian hate uh, here in British Columbia during the pandemic. He would do those things. He would go the extra step. He was on my Twitter combing it and then copying in all the people that I would speak with as well as using my image 
And then he'd go anywhere online where my name was mentioned and he would attack there as well. And this all together culminated in something that, that landed different. So that's when I started to go down the path of trying to hold them to account. I reported that to uh, Chorus where I was working uh, for the most part. I was on CKNW in Vancouver and, and filling in on Charles Adler and, and what have you. And, and that was the email address he was getting me at and, and copying in the world that I was working with there. And Linda Steele got a, many of the, the emails and she actually, unbeknownst to me, went to management and said, are you seeing what's happening with, with Jody? And others had done so as well. So I feel like, um, I feel like this landed different because of the number of emails it generated, the tone of the emails, the, the, um, lashing out to, you know, scientists across the country were getting these photos of me, you know, photoshopped into an Auschwitz prison camp and, and reaching out to me going, I'm so sorry, this man is coming at you. I was horrified, horrified embarrassed that these people had this jody swallows at gmail.com coming into their inbox it was just disgusting so i had to stop it and and today i will stop it today's a huge day i want you to know like i just feel i was hesitant to ask you to come on just because today's obviously a big day for you i didn't want to you know like you don't talk to goalies before the big hockey game kind of idea <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean and i was like i didn't know but i but i just we care about guy. you a lot you're a pal and and so this is i know a big day for everybody i want to say to people like you haven't even mentioned this uh, like you've you've had you've had some nightmare scenarios i mean the harassment over a number of years and and women do get it worse in media that's just a fact um and i think maybe even it doesn't have to be a competition but i think women of color get it worse than white women quite when, frankly worse than me 100 percent. way worse right, right? but i mean on, but you on. you had somebody like yes. you haven't even mentioned this yet you had somebody when you were in toronto i think it was right break into your apartment and like move a bunch of stuff around i mean this has been to the point and and you didn't i mean in that circumstance like this has been something that has been a reality this is something as they, as they would say has been in your kitchen for a long time so today for you i mean this is i can't even imagine how you're wrapping your mind around this um, it also means that we can't keep you late because you got to get there. Uh, so let me just ask you this in closing. Um, what do you hope that that other Canadians are taking from this, Jody? Like, what do you hope that the, the sort of the national response to this is? I think we might have had our, our feed just freeze with Jody Vance. Uh, well, listen, if that's the case, uh, she's got to go anyway. We were we were letting her go because she's got a meeting, as mentioned, uh, downtown Vancouver. So a bit of an interruption in the signal, which is, is, is not a big deal. We got the gist of the story there. And obviously you get a sense of, huh, can we say the fortitude of Jody Vance? Like she just does not mess around. But in a circumstance like this, the perspective check of what she has been dealing with both privately, and this is the stuff she's choosing to share with us. Uh, you can imagine the toll that something like this would take. Uh, if you want to give her a shout out, want to uh, send Jody some encouragement, of course, you can find her on Twitter at Jody Vance. She, uh, along with Linda Steele, hosts uh, Steele and Vance on Check. That's that employee-owned TV station out on the West Coast that we love so much, a really neat business model. Uh, Jody Vance, a great friend of this show, and we appreciate her availability. Uh, coming up in two minutes, we're going to talk to Dr. Uh, Rebecca Graf McRae. This is a really interesting piece that she's written in uh, the March issue of Alberta Views magazine. She calls it the UCP plan for public health care, underfund, criticize, privatize. We're going to get into that in just a second. You know, our Friday conversations are presented uh, by our friends at Urban Timber. Now, typically, they're sponsoring our roundtables. This week's roundtables... Uh, on a special edition, a special episode of Real Talk that was on Wednesday, back to back. 
Real Talk roundtables for International Women's Day. If you missed those, make sure you check out our March March 8th show. Uh, Those are presented by Urban Timber Reclaimed Wood. I want to tell you in particular about their boxcar collection, and you can check this out at urbantimber.ca. This is Reclaimed Wood from rail cars. These are the rail car planks that traveled millions of miles across North America. So they've got, you know, like marks and scuffs, of course, because cargo was being dragged across them. Freight was being dragged across the, the, the planks, the floors of these rail cars. Well, they're now turning them into custom tables, like boardrooms for offices, dinner tables. I mean, the family dining room. Are you kidding me with a boxcar table? What about a boxcar countertop? Shelving units. I mean, the sky's the limit when it comes to the creative visions that the team at Urban Timber can manifest. You won't find anybody else doing what they're doing. And uh, of course, all of this, a local family business, just beautifully done. You can check out their collection online at urbantimber.ca or you can go visit them in their West Edmonton showroom. Uh, They're open through the week, including on Saturdays from 10 to 4. You got to see it for yourself. I mean, just beautiful, one-of-a-kind furniture at Urban Timber. Uh, From the inside to the outside, the team at Eden Landscaping is bringing outdoor spaces to life. Mike and his team have been doing business, still family-owned, for more than 20 years They're problem solvers. And so when you ask Mike about what he loves, about what he does, his eyes light up. He says, people come to us with construction-related problems that they haven't been able to solve, and we fix them. And the proof is in the pudding. You go to landscapeedmonton.ca. You can learn more about their custom landscaping services, including excavation, stone and woodwork, retaining walls, outdoor kitchens, Whatever your vision, they will execute it with precise attention to detail. You can find Eden Landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca. We're always looking for ways to save you money. That's one of the promises we make when we choose who we're going to partner with here on Real Talk. We think, what's in it for the audience? Well, Park Power makes that answer easy to find on their website at parkpower.ca it takes literally two minutes to find the utility rate that's right for you electricity natural gas and internet is what park power does but i want to tell you today about their community partner program they share 10 percent of electricity profits that's no joke 10 percent of their profits with deserving charities across the province of alberta And they're also helping Albertans go green with their Solar Club program. If you have solar panels on your property, their Solar Club rates can help you earn more value from the electricity you're producing. Probably not in December and January, but in June, July, August, September, when your system's giving you more than you need, Park Power's going to give you more cash back than the big utility companies will. And there is no degradation of service. You don't sacrifice anything. It's the same level of service, just more savings when you use the promo code REALTALK23 to sign up for your utility bundle at parkpower.ca. And before we talk healthcare, why don't we talk about the health of the planet for a quick second while we're talking about solar panels. You know who I'm going to talk to you about. It's the team at Kubi Renewable Energy. They're installing more solar projects in Western Canada than anybody else, period. Solar energy solutions to power your life. You go to their homepage at kubienergy.ca, that beautiful install there. That's the Edmonton Convention Center. That is an entire solar install the entire front of it the entire facade is 
solar installed by Kubi. How cool is that? There's actually a poem integrated into it uh, celebrating the environment, including Edmonton's River Valley. Kubi works with Park Power to make this a seamless transition in some circumstances to get people off the grid. You can check out their blog link for more information on the Canada Greener Homes Grant. That's that federal loan up to $40,000 that could help you make solar a reality this spring with Kubi Renewable Energy. Well, the newest uh, issue of Alberta Views magazine is out and it focuses on healthcare. Makes perfect sense that the March issue would go there. I've got it in my hand right here because Albertans are going to be going to the polls at the end of May. We expect. And one of the things, if not the thing that Albertans are going to be asking elected representatives about is their plan for health care. That's what our feature guest in studio today has written about in her piece in Alberta Views. She's the research manager for the Parkland Institute. Dr. Rebecca Graf McRae joins me live in studio. You're making your Real Talk in studio debut. It's nice to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks. Good morning, Ryan. Yeah. So so uh, you've obviously, as research manager at Parkland Institute, been paying attention to a lot of stories and a lot of the things that happen that impact people's lives. Is it safe to say that people tend to care more about health care and health care delivery than anything else? Um, I could I could probably confidently say that i know there have been a couple of polls done i think one by the globe and mail five or six years ago that showed it was one of the top issues for canadians in general um and that uh when asked what was the thing that made them proudest about being canadian our healthcare system uh ranked in the in the top one or two at that time i don't know if that's that's something that we could be as confident about today um, and there are a lot of reasons for that at the moment. Your lead in this piece, which is really well done, by the way, you write a healthcare crisis is underway in every province across Canada and in countries around the world. Can we start with your diagnosis? Can we start with where you see it and what you're seeing? Maybe some of the consistencies across the provinces and even in other countries. And then we'll talk about the differences. Sure. I'm, I'm not that kind of doctor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Please do not come to me for health advice. Um, health politics advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the places that I keep um, a very close eye on in terms of politics and, and developments there is the UK. Uh, I spend a number of years living in, in Northern Ireland. So that's uh, have a lot of friends and colleagues still there, but also because their experience with their NHS um, has often been uh, a system that Canadians looking to expand our public health care system were, were looking as a, as a role model. Um, the NHS was, uh, for many, many years, much more comprehensive even than, um, than our public health care system here. It covered dental, covered prescription uh, care, um, optical care as well, right? So um, these are one of, surprise for a Canadian living in Belfast and going to pay for my prescription and, and no, no, that's covered for you. Mm. So so for many, many years, it was something that, um, that I looked to as a role model and that um, healthcare advocates were looking to. But in the past few years, probably over the past decade or so, they've started to see that same erosion of the public foundations of the NHS, increasing amounts of contracting out, um, sort of ring fencing certain types of services to private or corporate uh, for-profit providers. And where we see that sort of culminating during the pandemic and, and now in this aftermath is these staggering staffing uh, shortages 
um, incredible rates of burnout amongst healthcare workers. Um, and in the um, lead up sort of to, to the Christmas period, at the height of the seasonal influenza and other respiratory viruses, uh, rolling strikes across the healthcare system in, in the UK. So nurses, um, paramedics, uh, and other healthcare workers coordinating job action to really highlight that um, the conditions in which they're working are not sustainable, and certainly they're not being um, compensated for the work that they're doing either. So that's something where I, as a, as a researcher, kind of looking across, seeing many of those same conditions starting to, um, to reach a critical point uh, in other provinces, as you mentioned, where, you know, for example, uh, I was trying to put together a research project on uh, healthcare staffing crisis across Canada and how to develop a, uh, a staffing strategy for Alberta. And I contacted all of the experts across Canada to try to see if they would collaborate with me on this project. And they're all too busy <laughs> because they're in demand with every province, every agency, people asking, um, what can we do about the staffing crisis? So that's in Nova Scotia, that's in BC, that's in Ontario, that's in Quebec. So um, this is not unique to uh, the political or economic configuration of Alberta, but there are distinctive aspects to how Alberta Alberta um, and Alberta politicians are responding to those those factors. Your your uh, headline. I don't know if you typically the author of a piece doesn't write the headline. I don't know if you wrote yours or not. Did you? Which part? The, the underfund, criticize, privatize. Well, I will say um, my cousin gave me that one. Okay, yes, but, but, but so but but you, you'll you'll take ownership of it, and we borrowed it by the way for our promotion this morning of this. Um, it's it, it'll kickstart a conversation for sure. But you know you'll have uh, loyalists or defenders of this government say you got to be kidding me. You don't think we're going to intentionally underfund a system, uh, intentionally uh, degrade the health system for Albertans, in, in theory or in practice, putting people's lives at risk, you know, extending people's periods of pain, waiting for surgery, those types of things. You don't really think we're going to intentionally underfund it so we can criticize it, so we can privatize it. That sounds so nefarious. It sounds almost evil. What would you say? Oh, well, um, I think there's, t there's two aspects to that. And I think one, um, looking at this over the long term, since I've been researching healthcare policy in Alberta, um, it doesn't have to be deliberate to have um, malicious effects. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, some sort of Mr. Burns sitting behind the desk being like, all right, next we're going to, you know, next we're going to cut this and see who cries over it. Right. Um, the impacts are what they are, uh, right? The the other point I would make to that sort of mm, straw man, I guess, is is that we did see that during the pandemic. We did see deliberate decisions at the, the highest political levels that ignored the scientific evidence, that ignored the the um, ripple effects that were going through our healthcare system, and I think crucially have ignored the voices of healthcare workers on the front line, even as we're out there at the beginning, March 2020, clapping for them all. Oh, Banging right? pots and pans, yeah. Right, and then turning around and, and um, making specifically political decisions to alienate those workers, to um, to not compensate them for their work, to not acknowledge the um, 
the impossibility of their working conditions and to not hear when they're saying, I can't provide the care that Albertans deserve when they're seeking health care, when they're seeking seniors care, when they call an ambulance. Um, and that's what we've been hearing across those sectors. You talk and you write about, and people can check out this piece. I want to encourage people to check out uh, albertaviews.ca where they can read your piece in its entirety. And of course, we're going to encourage our audience to subscribe to and support Alberta Views like we do. More on that in just a second. But you write about TELUS's foray into, into healthcare, and that's just one corporation, and that's just one jurisdiction, and that's just one example. Um, do you think, like, is there a role that corporations can play. I mean, there's there's many corporations involved in healthcare delivery, obviously. Uh, but but let me ask you this: Why why does your back get up in that specific example? What is it about Telus Health or Telus Health delivery in particular that prompted you to invoke that example in the piece? Mm -hmm. I'll backtrack for a second and one to say that um, because this comes up a lot in this argument. Is for example, um, your family physician might likely be a, a corporation, right? They use yes. a, an, an incorporated designation because how we've set up our compensation for physicians is that they're private businesses who then bill to the public insurance plan. Now, when I reference the NHS in, in England and Wales, that's very different. Physicians are public employees of mm. the NHS. So um, it's not that it, as such that the word corporation is a dirty word. What we're talking about here where where it becomes, um, I think, antithetical to the, the ethos of public health care. These are for-profit corporations and they're ones, for example, tell us, uh, for example, Loblaws I mentioned as well, that have demonstrated over their their engagement with healthcare, but also in some of their other uh, work practices, they're not prioritizing the well-being of their workers. They're not prioritizing the compensation of their workers. They're not prioritizing the public interest or the public good. Uh, bread fixing, for example, mm. just a very small example. So if this is how they are about bread prices, what do you think they're building in for their profit margin when they're providing healthcare services? So that's where um, where I take a huge heaping spoonful of skepticism, but where I'm also I'm also looking at the demonstrated behaviors of these corporations, where their ethos is maximize profits, maximize quote efficiencies, um, make the largest return back to your shareholders or your executives, uh, 26 million to Darren Entwistle over three years in bonuses. Um, but uh, TELUS can't provide a million dollars in additional compensation for their technicians who are bargaining at the moment because, because that would cut into their bottom line. Mm. So when you think about these things and how they operate, that's um, in direct opposition to the philosophy of public health care when you are supposed to prioritize the well-being of your patients, the best medical care, um, regardless of someone's need or, or um, pardon me, uh, regardless of someone's ability to pay, it's prioritized based on need. So that's where I see like th these are two opposing forces. 
There, there will be valid points made about, um, and I don't know if you know this, but I'm the son of a physician, so I've grew up, grown up around healthcare. I've got a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of it in action. I've got, you know, a, a ton of respect for nurses and physicians and practitioners, and 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 for that matter, hospital cleaning staff and security guards and the whole. And I get it, and and um, and I and I think that they need to. I don't. I think that they're underpaid, and I think that they do so much heavy lifting physically and emotionally. And I want to say that before I ask you this next question, so you don't think that I'm this ghoul. Uh, but there will be people that are looking at line items in the budget, and they'll be looking at how much. Alberta spends or how much provinces and territories spend on health care and 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 they'll say like like any other ministry we do need to find efficiencies we do need to be able to afford the services that we provide this does need to be sustainable right and so how do you find that fine line like and I, I find you to be and in your writing I, I think that you are driven by empathy like I, I don't think that you're it, it doesn't strike me as a, as a, as a, as a horrific partisan attack um you strike me as somebody who wants to see the best in the healthcare system is that accurate um i would say that that my work particularly around this issue is driven by the evidence yeah it's driven by the research um and and also yes a, a personal belief in what healthcare is meant to be as i mentioned earlier right um that it's not a business right and I think that's where um, we fundamentally um, err in trying to apply business logic to a public service, right? Um, so that's my first statement, I think. My second one, when we talk about um, how much the province is spending, this is a little bit of a smoke and mirrors discussion because it's very easy for uh, a finance minister or, or a government spokesperson to come and say, we have, we're, we're making a record high investment in healthcare this year. It's higher than it's ever been. Um, yes, but because our population is growing because of inflation and that increased number doesn't meet those additional pressures, right? For example, in, in, in the recent budget just announced on the 28th, the increase in, in the healthcare overall budget is around 4%. Yeah. That doesn't cover the increase in population. It doesn't even keep up with inflation. And that's deliberate. That's explicit. The finance minister, Travis Taves, came out and said, this will now be the mandate going forward for uh, across the ministries to keep those budget increases at or below pop plus inflation. Mm. So this is a this is a, a very deliberate and calculated choice on the one hand and on the other to say but it's a record high number. Well we could add one penny to to this year's total and you can still make that claim. That doesn't mean that you're meeting the need. So that's the first question. You can always brag about the numbers depending on how you manipulate that perspective. The second is around the question of, of how much are other provinces spending? How much are we spending per capita? Um, this has been another one of these sort of um, diversionary uh, tactics. Uh, it's been used by conservative governments, not unique to the UCP, to say our comparator provinces. So in this sense, that means BC, Ontario, and Quebec, have similar sort of in population size and and um, configuration, even though obviously Quebec and Ontario are, are significantly larger. 
Um, so the goal since the UCP was elected in 2019 has explicitly been to bring our public spending in line with those comparator provinces. Right. So the result is now Alberta's per capita healthcare spending per person is now lower, significantly lower than BC, Ontario, or Quebec's, right? This is being celebrated as as victory, getting our fiscal house in order. Right. At the same time that we're seeing a crisis in EMS, a staffing crisis, we're struggling to get in nurses. People are waiting for 12 hours in the ER. I sat in the Stollery ER for nine hours the other day, right? It's not, it's not improving in a tangible way for people accessing that care. The interesting thing is that, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I do a really good job on this show of stating things that are very obvious, um, but, you're, but you're not uh, talking, and this is just a fact, uh, you're not talking about things that could happen, you're talking about things that are happening. And so I think that that's why the, the, right now this campaign, you know, this election period that's coming up is going to be really interesting because people are seeing things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not necessarily, I don't think, stuff that could be written off as fear-mongering in so many ways as someone like you might be saying, I sat in the stall, I hope everything's okay, by the way, I sat in the stallery ER for nine hours yesterday. Or somebody right now that's, you know, waiting 18 months for a hip replacement or whatever the case may yeah. be. Uh, I do want to ask you, uh, if, if you're just tuning in right now, we're talking to the author of the piece, Underfund, Criticize, Privatize, in Alberta Views, uh, in the March issue. You can read it out at albertaviews.ca. It's also where you can subscribe. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Graf McRae. We're talking a lot about surgical wait times. And I've shared your whole face just twisted, and and I, yeah. I and I happen to have I've shared this. I won't share his name, but I do have a friend that's an orthopedic surgeon, and uh, and he is 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 vehemently against a plan to privatize, and he's given me some reasons. Uh, one of them is that, uh, and he's not against capitalism at all, actually, but in this case, he is, and um, and he's concerned about his specific concern is about post surgical complications and who's on the hook to fix those and what that does to the system. Um, we had Dr. Shazma Mathani on just a few days ago. Oh, she's great. She's a force Amazing. of nature. Um, she just bristles at the mention of it. Um, you write and you report that uh, there are failed experiments in other provinces that prove or at least to demonstrate that privatization doesn't cut wait times or save money. And I was hoping we could get into that for the podcast audience. Sure. Um, at the moment, we're actually, I'm actually overseeing um, a, a report's dedicated to that exact question, um, looking at this um, Alberta Surgical Initiative, which was implemented by the UCP for that, that process of contracting out those elective surgeries. Um, so you can expect that uh, probably at the end of April for, for a really deep dive into that. Um, and so the research that this is um, reflecting comes from a, a comparison of, of a couple of different initiatives. So one is this explicit comparison to the Saskatchewan Surgical Initiative. And this is where, where this becomes a little bit of a shell game. So the Saskatchewan Surgical Initiative is held up as, uh, as the success story because they did actually lower their wait times during the, the span of the program uh, at a certain point. Okay. So there are a number of factors to that. The first thing to mention is that uh, there were a few key differences with how Saskatchewan implemented their program versus how Alberta has designed theirs. One was that Saskatchewan, in addition to contracting out surgeries to private for-profit uh, organizations, also invested heavily in public solutions to 
to surgical wait time. So around using public OR capacity, around um, queue management. So creating um, sort of single wait lists where you're allocated to um, sort of the first available surgeon or or these sorts of things, right? So um, my, my buddy, Andrew Longhurst, who works uh, in healthcare policy in BC, he's written an entire study on public solutions to surgical wait times. And many of these were, were the crucial factor in the Saskatchewan case, right? So when you separate out the, um, the investments and the changes that were being made on the public side, when the investments in those stopped and the demand increased during, um, during the pandemic in the last few years, the Saskatchewan wait times shot back up again. So the actual, the, the thing that's being hailed as the silver bullet, the contracting out, wasn't the key factor. It was the investments being made on the public side. And that's not what's being what's being implemented in Alberta. What would you say to somebody that says, hang on, though, if, if someone's going to fly down to Mesa, Arizona, or somebody's going to fly to Mexico, or they're going to fly to Boston to get a surgery done, uh, why wouldn't we give them the opportunity? Why wouldn't we draw talent here, surgical talent, investment dollars? Why wouldn't we open surgical centers here? Why wouldn't we stimulate our own economy? Why wouldn't we draw more medical professionals here and have surgical centers here that could operate in conjunction with public surgical facilities? You know what I'm saying? Like medical tourism is a thing and it is happening. And I've heard people ask me this. I don't have an answer for it, mm-hmm. uh, but people do ask that question. What would you say to them? So there's two big problems with that, and and they're they're encoded right in how you frame that. So the first part is is that um, you're you're operating these two systems side by side. Uh, the, there's a term for that. It was very popular when Ralph Klein was premier. It's called two tier healthcare. Yeah. Uh, what that means is you're creating a space where people have priority because they're paying out of pocket and flying over uh, as, as you say, as a medical tourist. That doesn't address anything that's happening for the people who can't pay. Right. In fact, that actually worsens their wait time because there's only, we talked about this earlier, there's only one set of healthcare staff and it's already under huge amounts of pressure. So you're saying drawing in physicians and surgeons, anesthetists, which we have a critical gap of anesthetists here in um, Alberta. I've had somebody tell me that's arguably the biggest problem right now. All right. They have the surgeons in some cases. They don't have those to put people under. Absolutely. And this, you know, um, you start then sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul in this sense. So Mm -hmm. we're talking, let's look at the closures across rural or small community um, hospitals that have been rolling for 18 months where Rimby, Sundry, Rocky Mountain House, a bunch of these hospitals can't offer labor and delivery services because they do not have an anesthetist on call, right? It's not about being able to deliver a baby. It's about what happens if that laboring person requires anesthesia for an emergency C-section or another emergency procedure. So these things are all connected. There's one system and there's one set of healthcare providers and they need to be able to do sort of multiple jobs and somehow prioritizing, you know, whoever to 
to fly over from from another province or from from elsewhere, or even people to jump the queue within Alberta, you're you're saying that 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 elective surgery somehow should come before those essential services that are already struggling. So, you, I guess in my mind, like in a perfect world. And you're just going to, Johnny, we can keep it on the two shots so we can watch the doctor roll her eyes while I talk. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to but, keep a straight face. No, you're, so. you're doing a great job, by the way. Um, but I, you know, and I, and I really appreciate these conversations. Like, this is how real people talk. Like, people just say, well, I've heard this or what about this idea? And you're taking these in stride. I appreciate it. But, you know, you, you, you sort of in a perfect world, you say, well, there are nurses that are graduating. There are surgeons that are graduating around the world, for that matter. And in, and in particular, in North America, let's say, but t- skilled professionals around the world uh, that could include an esthetistic a whole bunch of people and Alberta is a, is a province that right now is high on the hog um, that that should have the ability or does have the ability to pay competitive wages that should be recruiting workers in the same way that you're going to hate the comparison but that energy companies have recruited workers from across the country and around the world to work in the oil sands or to work wherever else or to, to come here for the opportunity I also see, you know, and, and the government's talking about restoring post-secondary funding, and, and that's not for everyone. Talk to anybody at the University of Alberta. It's not happening there, as an example. So I do know that, that, that there is not necessarily this huge talent pool of graduating surgeons and graduating nurses that Alberta can just draw from. But in a perfect world, that would be the vision, that Alberta would be an attractive jurisdiction to, 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 to not just recruit, but to retain workers and to be able to roll out a healthcare system that was kind of the talk of the town, you know, across the country. And I think there's two really key points there. One is, do you know what attracts people in is a, is, is a fully funded operational public healthcare system that's accessible to everyone on the same basis? How is it somehow better to say, oh, we've got this shiny executive version that some people could access. You could come work in it, but you probably won't make enough to access those services yourself. (laughs) I don't see the the draw for that. Um, At the moment, yeah, some of the funding from the the new healthcare budget is earmarked for these international recruitment delegations. Um, in particular, I just read about one that had gone to the Philippines. It's a, it traditionally has produced more nurses and other healthcare workers than than they have needed. Um, and there is an attraction there for people to come to a, a country like Canada. They make more, uh, sometimes uh, I think double what's being offered in the Philippines, and they can send money home. What's happening though, since the pandemic in particular, and these other pressures, this long kind of decade of of um, skilled and trained professionals trickling out of the country is now they're facing a critical shortage, right? That's not just the Philippines, that's across a lot of these countries that have been these sort of like feeder, um, feeder um, yeah, like generations. Yeah, yeah sure, exactly. And, and there's a lot of resentment around that as well to say here, now they have a system where, and it's not just new graduates, often um, it's very experienced healthcare workers who are being poached, attracted, target, like, hey, you know, wooed yeah, over. Is yes. What it is. Um, and, and that's leaving critical gaps within the healthcare systems of these other countries, which are often less advantaged than we are here in Canada. Um, and so again, there's only one pool of healthcare workers. 
Now, some of what's happening again with the budget is uh, attempts to increase post-secondary um, spaces for physician training, uh, for for nurses, and for uh, healthcare aides within like long-term care or seniors care. Um, it's not enough. First of all, uh, there was a, a I think a pharmacy student from U of A who wrote in CBC the other day. He did the numbers so I didn't have to, um, and pointed out that even with this addition of, of medical student spaces, the number at the U of A is now still less than it was in 2008, wow. when our population was a million people lower. So what I'm saying about this playbook, underfund, criticize, privatize, is that we, where we're coming back to historically high budgets and increases and how will we ever afford it with our $10 billion surplus, um, what's happening here is we're barely even approaching where we were in these services before the cuts started. And at that point in the early 2000s, they were barely even approaching recovery from when the Klein cuts started. So these start to become systemic underfunding. We come back to that question about malicious intent. At a certain point, when you've somehow tied these essential public services to a kind of like largesse, like we can afford this for, for a few years while the royalty money's coming in, but then we're all gonna have to tighten our belts and get our fiscal house in order, then this wave of unpredictability and lean times, um, it just becomes embedded into the system and there's no space for that system to recover to an ideal level that actually provides the care and the service. Um, I'm As we wrap, I'm not asking you to like look through rose colored glasses or anything like that. Uh, you said you, you did. You, she says I don't have any. Um, uh, but you know, with and I'm, and I'm not uh, intending to take away from what people are feeling. Like there, are, there are people that I mean, you know, my family doctor left, so I get it. I don't currently have a family doctor. Like I get it. Um, there are people that are walking away, and he's young, by the way. He's like my age. Um, not that I'm young, but he, and and he's you know, and, and he's just one of many. And there are there are healthcare workers that are um, going to be uh, or that are already living with PTSD uh, from things that happened during the pandemic or unrelated to the pandemic. We're, we're stretching them at all ends. I mean, I, you know, it really the more you talk about it, kind of to be honest, the more discouraging it is. The more you realize, the more of a wake up call we get in in, in how bad things are right now. Um, but here's the rose colored part: uh, like, do you have reason to believe that it can be fixed? Like is 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 it all doom and gloom? Is there a is there a fix? There's absolutely a fix. And is, um, and is it just dump five more billion dollars into yeah. it, or it's not? It's not strictly about the dollar amount, and it's really not. And that's something that that becomes apparent, like looking at this budget as well. So there's these crises in EMS and crises in in uh, seniors care. You know being exposed by what's happened during the pandemic, and and as you say, all of these sort of ripple effects from that. Um, and, and saying we're just going to increase the budget line is just like putting a Band-Aid over top of, of several leaks happening. The fix is thinking about, one, how the system works as a whole, how all of those pieces fit together within our healthcare system, and how if you, um, if you have these gaps in one part, people are going to fall into other parts of the system. So for example, with primary care, if you can't access your doctor, 
um, and something, you know, a health issue comes up, maybe it starts small, it gets worse and worse, you're going to end up in the ER, right? That puts more pressure on, on parts of the system until they can't handle it. So the first step is to take a step back and say, now, how do we look at this system as a whole and how the pieces work together? Also, how do we keep people from needing to access, you know, um, hospital care or uh, extensive diagnostics or, uh, you know, hip surgery or all of these things? How do we keep people healthy? That's a question that centers on uh, wealth inequality, that centers on poverty, that centers on education, that centers on racial discrimination, uh, gender discrimination, pay equity legislation would be a nice start. Um, so certain measures that um, aren't traditionally in the wheelhouse of of what this government has has demonstrated demonstrated as their priority. Because it seems like it's not, and it's not hard to sell to everybody. Um, but it seems hard to sell to the like the whole. What is it like? An, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or whatever people the mm -hmm. expression. But it's like people, if you say like we're investing in school lunch programs, or or we're investing in like when and, and people kind of go like a hell of a lot of good that's going to do me on this bum knee waiting for certain. And, and it's and it's kind of like it seems, you know, part of the big problem. Again, here's here's another less than profound statement, but like unfortunately, policy works in election cycles, and so you get like a three or four year vision for something as opposed to like a twenty five year plan or a three month vision or a three month vision to win an election, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 this is like I know I'm stating something obvious, but this is this is part of the reason why I. I just wish sometimes I lament, and this is part of the role that this show hopes to play, is to to change the way that people think of things, to change the way that people approach problem solving. Right. And I think it's it's to make it really explicit, first of all, that those long-term sort of systemic transformation within those public services, those are happening. You're being promised a short-term fix with something like this budget. There's already a long game being played that I've tried to lay out in terms of healthcare here in the article, right? And what that involves is a redistribution of wealth and power upwards. Now, when we talk about what the long-term fix is, it's the opposite of that. And it does involve a redistribution of wealth and power and, and agency downwards to everyday Albertans and to the ones who are most in need. So it's that equity piece, right? And that's what addresses the social determinants of health. And that's what takes those pressures off of those systems. So people can say, well, that's ideological, but what's happening and not being talked about is, is already a, a political program in place. So yes, it's about saying we have to be, um, we have to be accepting that there, either way, there's a long game. What do we want that to look like 30 years from now? Um, and to be aware that what's happening right now is setting all of that in motion, for better or for worse. Can I say I'm glad that we didn't have a healthcare roundtable today? I'm glad that we got just a half hour with just you. Oh, uh, no, it's obviously that you really give a rip about what you write about and what you research. And, and I appreciate you joining us here on the show today. This has been really solid. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you got it. This is Dr. Rebecca Graf McRae. Uh, you can read her piece, uh, Underfund, Criticize, Privatize, in the March issue of Alberta Views Magazine. And, and Real Talkers, here's a pretty cool opportunity for you. 
as a subscriber to a, a, an audience member of this show right now, you can get 50% off half off a one-year 10-issue subscription to Alberta Views magazine by entering the code AVRJ. That's Alberta Views, Ryan Jesperson, AVRJ at Alberta Views uh, website. That's albertaviews.ca. You just click on the subscribe link and at checkout, enter the promo code AVRJ to get 50% off a one-year 10-issue subscription to Alberta Views magazine. We do encourage you to support the independent media uh, producers across the province, and that includes the team at Alberta Views. I've been a proud subscriber for a long time. And uh, Dr. Graf McCray, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this. Thanks again, Ryan. Have a great weekend. That conversation is presented by our good friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, and they want me to remind you that this is a perfect opportunity this weekend to go check out their signature stack burger lineup. I personally recommend the Bacon Two Cheese Deluxe. And uh, while we're telling the truth here on this day, I'm going to let you know that I recommend the triple patty version. I know I've shown some of you this on my Instagram stories, and you're like, really, dude, three patties? Absolutely yes. Always say yes to the triple patty Two Cheese Deluxe Signature Stacker. Of course, if you're looking for something with a little more pizzazz, there's that Flamethrower Signature Stack Burger, the Loaded Steakhouse Signature Stack Burger, which comes with, of course, that onion ring as well. Absolutely delicious. And then the Mushroom Cheeseburger. I know that's a favorite with a lot of you real talkers. You can find these at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. When you visit a Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park, you let them know that Real Talk sent you. Hey, if you're going to be hosting a brunch coming up in the next little bit, can we refer you to Friesen Brothers? Friesen Brothers has an absolutely fabulous spread in their bakeries, and that includes the world-famous Friesen Brothers Hot Cross Buns. They're back, and they're available all the way through until Easter. They're baked fresh daily by real sourdough bakers with 100% Alberta flour. And of course, they include a little bit of Charlie. That's their mother dough. Charlie is the sourdough starter at Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across the province of Alberta. And all this talk about recruiting talents, I mean, this isn't healthcare. This is energy. This is automation. This is robotics. This is technology. But if you happen to be catching this show from somewhere in Canada, you're a professional engineer, maybe you're a technician, and and maybe you've just had enough of your current scenario. Maybe you just feel underappreciated, or, or maybe you're just looking for a change of pace, a new challenge. Can we refer you to apexautomation.ca? Check out the careers link. They're hiring extraordinary people, giving them the opportunity to develop and reach their full potential, uh, both technically and as human beings. Yeah, that's right. People don't leave companies. People leave people. And at Apex Automation, they're putting people over profits. Hey, the best move you make in your career could be checking out apexautomation.ca slash careers today. Every Friday, our friends at Local Environmental Services give us an opportunity to blow off a little steam. We call it trash talk. And in just a second, we're going to get to a couple of emails that are, well, they're bangers, to say the very <laughs> least, John. Uh, one of them in particular. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this one. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. But, but, but before we do, I want to give you a, a quick shout out here. This is Kaysen Fuser. And Kaysen, at just seven years old, uh, uh, w- was attacked 
by a cougar. He was attacked by a cougar and he survived. It's a remarkable story. And we wanted to let you know that coming up on Monday, Kaysen is going to be serving. He's going to be feted, John. He's going to be celebrated as the mayor of the mall. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's going to be at West Edmonton Mall coming up on Monday, March 13th. He's the mayor of the mall uh, in partnership with Stars Air Ambulance and local environmental services. And he's going to have an unbelievable experience, uh, an event, uh, this day-long event tailored specifically to his interests. Okay, so he's going to get VIP access to the attractions he's going to get shopping sprees at his favorite stores he's going to get a night at the Fantasyland hotel of course this all in celebration of a young man that survived an experience an unimaginable experience uh, receiving including uh, immediate medical attention and critical care and transport provided by stars it's a good news story out of a nightmare scenario and I'm really excited to let you know that Kaysen is going to be joining us on the show next week. Amazing. So you can look forward to that. This would not be happening with the support of our good friends at Local Environmental Services, who also present Trash Talk! All right, now, if you're one of Kaysen's seven-year-old friends... Uh, this is where you put on the earmuffs, buddy. <laughs> this is when this goes to mummies and daddies only. Uh, this is an email here from Adam who says, I've been hearing a lot about uh, rage farming. Someone accused me of rage farming the other day. He says, like, Ricky Bobby's delinquent sons. This is like people getting hopped up on Mountain Dew, throwing Grandpa Chip's war medals off a bridge. He says, listen closely, everybody. My grandfather didn't give up the best years of his life just to see his brothers blown to pieces, to witness death and atrocity on another unfathomable scale and to live with it for the rest of his life memories he told me he could only see in color so you can all go about your whitewashed lives my grandpa killed nazis in normandy then in belgium and you better fucking believe he killed nazis in germany so you could live in a world without tyranny without monopolistic authoritarianism and without genocide my grandfather was involved in shooting down v2 rockets aimed at citizens in antwerp something eerily similar to a modern day circumstance but sure rage for why don't you go back to burning books? All this nonsense. You should probably bash the mirrors too, folks, if you're not ready for that type of reflection. The Conservative Party of Canada is now the elephant on a on a, on a pimple's ass. And that's your fault. But I'm not going to angry crop about that. In fact, I don't give a crop. You see what he did there? Yeah. Go farm for yourselves and farm yourself quickly before you ruin the soil. That's from Adam metaphors abound when it comes to Adam's trash talk submission. And this one from Gabriel. This is the one I told you about, Johnny. He Mm -hmm. says, Ryan and John, two things to lovingly toss at you both. First, my good man, I'm going to need something from you. If I could be so bold, what exactly is the far left? What is it? Like what groups off the top of your head are far left in this country? Who in the mainstream is far left? He says, I get the impulse to throw out the phrase the far right and the far left, but holy shit, there's no such thing as the political far left in Canada. People think I'm left because I think for-profit healthcare should not be expanded, or I don't think I should have to fear for my life walking or biking to the grocery store with my kid. And this ties into my second point, says Gabe. Left to his own devices, Pierre Polyev would 100% proudly inhabit the space taken up by the 
far right where this stupid German politician hangs out. The one you were talking about earlier this week, Jespo. If it wasn't clear to people before February of last year that the far right exists in Canada, then it would be hard for it to not be clear now. Poliev has been in politics since he was in his early 20s. It's very, very, very fucking clear who he is. And I feel like he's going to be set up by the media like Donald Trump was when all commentators would say in unison that he turned a corner and he started sounding presidential after one of his stupid State of the Union addresses. Pierre is your run-of-the-mill, shitbag politician who people somehow think is capable of caring about them. He does not care about you. He's more than happy to court and cover for people who want to actively harm others, people who hold less power than they do. And then Gabe says, love to you and Johnny and all the shit you take from armchair assholes like me every single week. We love you, Gabe! Johnny wouldn't be queuing the live studio audience if he wasn't <laughs> having that resonate with him. You can send us, these are real emails, your trash talk to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You could be featured in a future edition of Trash Talk. Don't forget, we release it as a standalone on our podcast. Thanks for subscribing there. It comes out on Saturdays. You can also find them on our YouTube channel. Thanks for being one of the 10,000 plus that subscribe to our YouTube channel. Let's get that to 100 grand. Woo! That's going to happen when you start telling your friends, when you start sharing our content, when you like and subscribe and all the other cool stuff that helps a show like this grow. We love you guys. Thanks for showing up for the real talk. Have a safe weekend. We'll be right back at it Monday morning. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.